Hi, mom and dad are fighting listeners. I'm Susan Matthews, and I am the editorial director of Slate's podcast, The Waves, which we've recently just brought back. It's our show about gender and feminism. And we thought that you might be interested in this week's conversation. I talked to Elizabeth Bruning, a writer at The Atlantic, about a piece that she wrote uh, about her decision to become a mom at 25 and why parenting when you're younger might not be so bad. We thought that you would like it too. So here it is in your feed. Enjoy. This is The Waves. This This is is The Waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and the precise correct age at which to have your first child. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off of our minds. And today, you've got me, Susan Matthews, the news director at Slate. I'm joined by Elizabeth Bruning, who is now a writer at The Atlantic, but just before that, she was an opinion writer at The New York Times. It's one of her last pieces there that we're going to talk about today. The piece was published on Mother's Day, and it was called, I Became a Mother at 25, and I'm Not Sorry I Didn't Wait. Liz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's a thoughtful piece, and it also spurred quite a bit of backlash and argument online. And so I wanted to have you on to talk about both the arguments in the piece itself and to sort through why it provoked the kind of response it did and what we should take from that. So we'll get into both of those things right after the break. So, Liz, I wanted to start by asking you how you came to write this piece in the first place. There's been a lot of conversation lately about the falling birth rate, a lot of consternation about that. To me, though, this piece really felt like something that came from a more personal place. Um, So I just wanted to start by asking you if you can tell me a little bit about like when you realized, oh, people think that you are a young mom and they have all these feelings about that. Yeah, it was mainly during the pandemic. Um, so, you know, most of my friends are my age. They're, you know, 28, 29, 30, or, you know, somewhere around in there. I'm 30 years old at this point. Uh, and during the pandemic, my friends would say stuff like, you know, I haven't seen or spoken to anyone um, in weeks. I'm I'm completely alone. I'm so by myself. I would feel the complete opposite way. I would be like, I have not been alone in weeks. I have had someone like literally breathing in my mouth as I wake up every day for weeks because my kids wake up, they come get in bed with me and then they're like, oh, this sucks. Mom's still asleep. So I better fix that. Um, And then they (laughs) they just they wake you up in very adorable ways, such as my two year old will try to kiss me awake. And, you know, it's a completely different experience. And I began to realize that while my friends my age weren't having uh, that experience. They were kind of going through the opposite. Women about 10 years older than me, who I worked with, colleagues, were having the same experience I was. They were sort of getting through the pandemic while working from home, while dealing with, you know, in in most cases, young children, you know, uh, grade school aged or younger children. And I realized, yeah, I'm just a kind of grade down from those women in terms of age. And so I'm just kind of out of joint 
with where my friends are in their lives. And, and I thought that was interesting. And so, you know, demographically, I kind of looked at the trends and I was like, yeah, it makes sense. You know, friends my age, they're just not there at this point. I'm where my friends are going to be in 10 years or so. To me, a lot of the reaction to the piece, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in the next segment, felt like it it was making an assumption that the piece was being very prescriptive. And I have to admit that when I first read it, that was a little bit of my reaction, too. And I kind of unpacked that and felt like, is this because this is in the piece or is this because this is just my natural reaction to any anyone writing about having children right now, which is the thing that I think about. Um, so I was curious to hear when you were writing this, did you feel like you were actively trying to give advice of some kind or advocate for anything in particular? I guess the real question is, who did you feel this piece was for? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking uh, there were so many stories coming out, especially about the pandemic, about women who felt they had lost a year in dating or in childbearing or, you know, in whatever goals they had set for themselves. They felt like, you know, their time was super compressed because they had had a timeline laid out and the pandemic just screwed everything up for everybody. And so my thinking was, well, you know, your timeline doesn't have to be as compressed as you think, because, you know, you can just go ahead and have kids and it's not as bad as you might think. So one of the things, you know, a naturally kind of anxious person like every other writer, you know, one of the things that really helped me kind of get over my natural tendency to anxiety as I got older is realizing that sometimes the thing you're afraid of happens and everything's okay. Sometimes the worst possible thing happens and everything's still okay. So when I was 38 weeks pregnant with my daughter, my husband lost his job. He got fired. We All our health insurance was through him, etc. It was still okay. And I was 25. I was brand new at the Washington Post. And I suddenly had a baby and it was okay. And there are so many other things in life that, you know, my husband's sister later that same month that he was fired and we had a baby, she was murdered. And life went on and it wasn't great. I mean, but it, you can, you'd be surprised at what you can get through despite detours from the plan. And that has been a, a big part of me being able to kind of, I think, flourish as someone who otherwise would worry way too much about things not going according to plan. So I wanted to share that. <laughs> this is, it's such a, it's such a nice way of looking at it. And it's such an interesting thing because when I think about anxiety or the things that make me anxious, I think so much about things that haven't happened yet. And if something hasn't happened yet, it means it's never going to happen at all. And mm -hmm. I think that I, I see that in some of my friends who like haven't met a person that they would partner with or haven't, you know, made some of these life milestones, haven't found the career that is right for them. And I think it's just it's very interesting. Like everybody has their own I think particularly writers have their own relationships with anxiety and this idea of like the worst could happen or nothing could happen, like both being such strong triggers of like what is oh, yeah. going to happen with my life. Is, yeah, yeah. Is a big one. And that kind of relates to. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, you talk a lot in the piece about some of the reasons that people are delaying motherhood or parenthood in general. Um, and there are a lot of really practical reasons for that. I, I kind of felt like in the piece, you almost made the case for 
delaying, like you like mustered the evidence for, for delaying and you didn't exactly bring the same amount of evidence to the case for having your kids young. You just kind of said, you kind of wrote it about that very personally, like you did it and it worked out for you and you just expanded on that a little bit. But um, I was wondering if you felt like there were arguments against having kids young or for having kids young that you had thought about and and discarded. Like one thing that I really noticed in this piece is that you didn't mention fertility at all, which felt somewhat generous from my perspective. But I'm curious if you did that um, intentionally. So I was kind of curious what the things that you had thought about and kind of discarded might have been. Yeah, well, there aren't arguments in in favor of just, you know, having kids as young as you can, because I wasn't trying to persuade anyone. It was more that if you were thinking about it, or if you were on the fence, or if you were scared, but it was on your mind, this was sort of a, a helpful, like, hey, it can, it can be okay. Like, it's it doesn't have to be the end of the world. My thinking on fertility is, you know, every woman already knows. No woman needs to be reminded that, um, if, you know, fertility is a time-compressed thing and the technologies that are supposed to expand fertility into later years are expensive and spottily reliable. They're not 100%. They're invasive. We all already know that. Nobody needs me telling them that. And so I was not trying to write a piece that was like, you know, you girls, you you better get it together and make hay while the sun is shining or else you may not have another chance because they've heard it so many times. And also because I think the reasons women have for delaying are good. I think they're good reasons. I don't think that they're, you know, irrational or unfair or, or anything like that. I mean, kids cost money. That's true. Having quite a bit of debt, as a lot of people and millennial generation do, that's disturbing. That's something that's going to be weighing on you for a long time, depending on how much debt you do have. Career hopping among millennials, right? The fact that the job market is just sort of tumultuous and that there are a lot of reasons to move around in it. Those things are all real phenomena. No one's dreaming those up. I would know better than anyone. I was at the New Republic, like the 20th iteration of it, when I got knocked out with my first baby. And it went up for sale. And then I had to get a new job while 20 weeks pregnant. Um, I got hired at the Washington Post and my husband lost his job while I was still pregnant. And then um, I was a Pulitzer finalist at the Washington Post when I was 20 weeks pregnant again and interviewed at the New York Times for my new job while I was still breastfeeding my second baby. I mean, it's tough. It's not easy. You want to get on the Acela with a breast pump, you tell me how that is. It sucks. <laughs> right? So their reasons are not bad. <laughs> yeah. Did you have... Did you have conversations with those employers? Like, how how did that process go on, on their end? Like, was it uncomfortable? It's, it's such a third rail because in an interview process, when you're, like, visibly pregnant, yeah, it's, like, the most dangerous game. Like, you're trying not to show them and they're trying not to look. Um, you don't want to put them off because you understand they don't want to pay for maternity leave for someone who's worked there for all of three weeks. 
at the same time, they don't want to get accused of pregnancy discrimination if they don't hire you. So right. they, they every, know. <laughs> yeah, everyone's covering their eyes and trying. <laughs> um, uh, it, but it was it was great at the post. It's just it's one of those things where like pregnancy and child bearing is one of the most personal things that you can possibly yes. do. And yet, like, it's also just inherently public in this way that is very exhausting and Absolutely. frustrating and it has this connection to the job stuff in a way that is is kind of unavoidable. And I, I think that point of like, once people have gone through it themselves, they can kind of turn back and see it. And you, you would also hope that the people who are thinking about doing it can look at upward and say, maybe if this happens, it would benefit me <laughs> to be able to move around when I'm in my childbearing years and not feel guilty yeah. about that. Kind of. No, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, pregnancy, it's so public, it's so visible, it's something that's impossible to really hide or establish any level of privacy in, you know, you hope you can establish boundaries. And I think one of the things that's so wild about it is it has all of these connections to things that are really not only live wires politically, but they're just kind of at the core of who we are as human beings. Pregnancy is connected to sex. It's connected to family. Yes, it's connected to politics. It's connected to religion and what you believe and what you want for your life and the future and and the sort of destiny of humankind. And like all of those things roll up into just a big uh, sort of web of meaning Yes. <laughs> that surround the pregnant belly. And at the same time, everyone who has had kids and everyone who has been pregnant knows every pregnant person is just dragging their ass through it day by day. I mean, it's always some kind of disaster. <laughs> well, and, but also the, the meaning that you talk about, like there's a visibleness to it when it's happening, but there's like a lack of visibility to it when it's not happening and when it's right. the question of what people want. And so yeah. I was thinking about like my initial reaction was like, oh, God, like this is the thing that I'm supposed to be thinking about. And I don't really know what I want exactly yet. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was this question of like, do you think you cited all these very reasonable reasons why people talk about delaying child rearing? And when I when I read through some of those, I was like, yep, I've used that one and that one and that one. <laughs> and I just kind of felt like, do pe like it feels like a really hard thing for people to give precise, honest answers about these things because there's like the logic and then there's the emotion and then there's the like personal circumstances. I, I mean, I like I am a childless person who I, I have a partner. We want kids. It's and like my reasons for it have very much been my partner just finished law school. Like there are all these reasons that I can can give. And when I think about it, I kind of think like, oh, but it's just so wrapped up in so many other things that there's no yeah. way I could say that in a sentence that would make any sort of sense to anyone anyway. And it's just very personal. I mean, A, a lot of the reasons for not having kids or for having kids, the reasons for doing it right now or for not doing it are just ineffable. There's just, I know now is just, it's not right. I don't feel good about it. Or with my second kid, she was planned in the sense that my mom took my older daughter trick-or-treating and we had like a couple free hours and we were like, you want to have a kid? And that was it. That's why, that's why Claire is a July baby. <laughs> she was <laughs> conceived on Halloween. And, and like, you just, that was the moment and, and that's fine. But similarly, many moments before and after that have been not the moment. Everybody who doesn't have kids yet has lots of those not the moments. 
and you don't have to, you don't owe an explanation to anyone. However, some of the explanations that are invented on the spot are kind of funny. Like I uh, simply cannot due to climate change. Um. <laughs> I, I often, I'm, I'm very worried about climate change and I often think that climate change is one of the easiest ones to slot in there to be like, this, yeah. uh, this signals that I'm a good worried person yeah. and, and it's just, yeah. And it's a good explanation that simply <laughs> brokers no further debate. Yeah, you, yeah. Can't, yeah, you can't come back from that. Um, we're going to take a break here, but if you like what you're hearing and want to hear more from Liz and myself on an another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, Gateway Feminism, where today we're going to be talking about the things that helped us become feminists. I'll be talking about not registering my women and gender studies minor for actual credit in college. Uh, Liz, do you know what you're going to be talking about? Uh, Reading The Handmaid's Tale in junior high. Liz, we talked about your actual essay. Now I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about the reaction to your piece, which was strong from many sides. Uh, so I guess I first just wanted to start by asking, what do you think it was about this piece that provoked such a strong reaction from so many different types of critics? Well, I think it's it's that, that web of meaning, you know, that's so tied up and so many things that mean so much to people. And I think... It's hard, especially if you're a woman who's being badgered all the time in one direction or the other. Like, you know, every week we get a new birth rate piece. And mm-hmm. this was not a birth rate piece. This is about, you know, individual person making a decision about whether to move forward now or not based on their age and their particular life situation. I'm not saying en masse we have to xyz the birth rate that's sort of a population level issue this is more of a as you pointed out sort of a personal individual level essay but i think it got wrapped up into a lot of that you know so you have people who are kind of fear-mongering about the birth rate seeing you know being like listen up liberals look at this ladies and that's not at all what was intended or what was said but then people respond to it on those grounds and then you have people who feel like there's like a kind of latent social conservatism in there. Like, oh, is it saying don't go to college, don't get a job, just stay home and have babies? And I mean, that's certainly not what I did. I went to college, I got a master's degree, I was in a PhD program, and I've always worked full time. So, you know, certainly not suggesting that. But I think it just because of the nature of pregnancy, because it's such a strange thing, you know, there's nothing else in, in, in a person's life is anything like it. And so I think it just engenders really strong emotions for for good reasons. Right, cuz it's so singular and yet like it's also so normal. Like we we need to reproduce. Like that's like Every a lot day. of people do it. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. It happens. So one of the reactions that I thought was really interesting was like the read of the piece as if it, it itself was a provocation in a way. And I think that this was like from my perception, this was a cycle of internet rage in which like women largely didn't take the bait. Like there were some people who were Mm -hmm. like, this is so bad. And then there were lots of people who looked at it and were kind of like, this is a whole ridiculous thing that we're having this conversation about it. Yeah, no, Um, thank you. (laughs) Right. But it felt like that concept of like, she knows exactly what she's doing here was kind of one of the accusations that was levied at you. Like you should know that when you when you write about this, you're going to make a certain kind of woman feel bad or that it's, um, you know, it's it's intended toward a certain audience. So I was wondering if you 
anticipated this reaction when you wrote the piece? Do you think about the potential reactions and try to moderate against them at all when you're writing? Or do you kind of just say what you're intending to say? Yeah, I, I, had a, I had a good bit of advice, actually, from a colleague of mine at The New York Times, Ross Douthat, who gets quite a bit of uh, shit on Twitter and so is a bit of an expert in it. And he was giving me advice on writing a column when I was hired at The Post to write as an opinion column. So very, you know, relatively early in my opinion writing career. And he said, when you're writing a piece, think about your second worst critic, because the person who is most critical of you is going to get mad no matter what you do. There's no defending against a certain level of interest in getting upset. So there's always this kind of baseline level of people online who are going to get pissed off about stuff just because it's in the New York Times, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just how Twitter runs. And that's, you know, we all know the game. It's fine. We all play the game. Um, who, who among us hasn't gone on Twitter to find something to get pissed off about? So I do follow that advice and I think about, well, for my like second worst critics, for people who would say, isn't this somewhat provocative? That's why I put in so much material saying these are good reasons. Like mm -hmm. the people who are delaying have very good reasons. I'm not saying that they don't. And it has been hard. And so that was my effort at saying this isn't an attack or a suggestion that anyone who's not having children at 25 is just taking the you know easy way out because there's no easy way out it's hard to do it young it's hard to do it when you're older there's no easy way out here mm -hmm. and for you as a writer you've written quite a bit about like the more structural ways that we could address some of the difficulties <laughs> of, of having a child at any age oh and I think that's so important yeah, yeah. Got to catch up with the rest of the developed world on that level, I think. Right, exactly. Um, but it it was like definitely coming from both sides. And I think that this is, I'm curious to hear what you think about this, because I think that this is something that happens with your work. You're writing things that are not easily quantifiable sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so like you write something, the left reacts, and then the right reacts to the left's reaction. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So oh, yeah. I was wondering what you think about that. That definitely happened here in the sense that the right definitely reacted to this saying, look, the left can't even handle a warm depiction of motherhood. But it, I was curious if you had thoughts about it in this specific case or in that pattern in general. This is a very unhealthy political climate where... Because Twitter is not, I mean, Twitter seems like it's a conversation, right? Like you're talking to somebody else. It's really a performance or you're talking on a stage and people are sort of heckling and interacting with you as you're performing a conversation with somebody else. And so what Twitter really rewards is these sort of performances where one political side can point to it and say, look at this, you see what's happening here and kind of frame whatever conversational transaction is happening. And then the other side can respond to that in some other way. And so I think, you know, sort of constantly this is going on. I think right now the, the best example is this critical race theory debate where the right kind of sets up the conversation and frames it in the way they want it framed. But really what they want the left to do is respond. Mm -hmm. And then when the left responds, that's when the real fun begins and the right begins to kind of take the response and make hay out of that. And that's just that's social media promotes that it encourages that it rewards that. 
And it's a type of conversation that's not productive. It may be politically helpful for someone. Do you um, think it is? Who is it? I mean, it, it drives votes, right? And, and to the degree that it can piss people off, it could turn out the vote, you know. Um, but it, it seems to be overall sort of degrading the, you know, political culture and, and causing more trouble than anything else. But you are a person who seems to spend a bunch of time on Twitter. Do you like it? Oh, I find it hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, so you find it, it it's fun or it's annoying or like I'm like I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what you get from it. Yourself, yeah, Twitter is fun and annoying. And yeah. I also am fun and annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, it's just about it's about boundaries and like. I post links to things I've written on Twitter, and that is the most serious purpose I use it for. Otherwise, I really only use it for screwing around because I already have a lot of serious subjects I'm dealing with in my life, in my reporting, and I don't need a space for me to misspeak, misrepresent myself, cause problems for myself, my family, or my employer uh, because I'm getting mad off the cuff. Someone, a wise person once said, Twitter is where um, stupid people go to act smart, but it's more fun when it's where smart people go to act stupid. Yeah. And so I, I try to I try to stick to that. And also an, an even wiser person once said on the Internet, <laughs> these are just posts I'm recalling. There are two types of stupid. There's happy, stupid and angry, stupid. And I, I try to adhere to the code of only being happy, stupid. It's very hard to stick in that lane without bringing yeah. some of the angry stupid in along with it. And that's when I think things feel really exhausting and complicated. Absolutely. And I get roped into it more often than I would like to. But but most of the time, it's just like debating <laughs> where's the best place to get West Nile. Um, <laughs> Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. or Dallas. You can definitely die of heat stroke for less money in Dallas, Texas. You can die of heat stroke in a lot of places, I think, is one of the problems to loop us all the way back to climate change. Yeah. Uh, a lot of existential eggs can come out um, no, on, very true. on Twitter through that. Um, since we're talking about Twitter, I'm going to bring up another recent tweet of yours, <laughs> that, okay. which is related to our conversation about parenting, which was about housework and mm -hmm. the fact that it's not hard, but I think you would probably agree can be boring and repetitive. I think that this gets into like some of the interesting questions about what you give up when you become a parent. You're basically signing up for some drudgery and signing away some glamour, some sense of, of freedom in a way. And I thought that your piece was a, a really beautiful rendering of like why that's worth it. But I was curious just to hear a little bit more about like what that trade-off of like the boring drudgery of parenting has been for you, particularly maybe in the time when, you know, your career has been also like you were a Pulitzer finalist, like you're not sloughing off there at yeah. all. So it's a little bit of the, the doing both, but how, how you've managed that. Yeah, I mean, so this is where I have to show my cards somewhat, which is that I am like um, a sallow little gremlin. So I was never like out on the town, living it up, sex in the city style. I don't drink. I have never been to, I think, what you could properly describe as the club. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just sort of a dork and a loser by nature. So 
and I know this about myself and I, I, I accepted it a long time ago. What does get difficult is work, especially if you travel for work. So in reporting, you know, the story that was the Pulitzer finalist was Amber Wyatt's story. That was an investigation of a gang rape I did in North Texas. I had my daughter, Jane, in the course of that reporting and got pregnant with my second kid while I was winding it up. And so I was traveling while I was pregnant. I was um, reporting with a baby. I mean, it was and that's hard. It's tough. Um, I mean, I've taken phone calls with police officers or medical examiners while nursing. And what can you do? You just be up front. You know, I'm sorry if we're interrupted. I have a newborn in my arms. Um, and you realize that male colleagues are not having to give those kinds of explanations or provide that level of intimacy or uh, insight into their personal lives. And that can be a drag. But, you know, you warm it up. You're like, yeah, this is what I'm going through. It's what I'm dealing with. And to maybe just bring it full circle to close out, like when that's happening, you're not really thinking that they're wondering if you're 25 or 35. I assume no. <laughs> it's just no. this is what's happening. And these this these is where I am. have taken over. This is what we're going through. Yeah. I mean, I have a video of when I got back from Terre Haute last year, I witnessed a federal execution during a bar and Trump's execution spree in Terre Haute, Indiana. And I came back through LaGuardia uh, into uh, New York, so my family could pick me up and bring me home to our place in Connecticut. And I, you know, had, hadn't slept. I saw the execution. I stayed up all night writing. I got up on this early morning flight, came back to D.C. I had filed my piece. And I have a video I, I filmed walking to the car and opening the doors to the back. And both of my kids were in there. And my four-year-old had a little present for me. And my one-year-old was kicking her feet and smiling and I'm like, you know, all things considered, this isn't a bad thing to come home to. I'll take it. Before we head out, we wanted to give some recommendations. Liz, what are you loving right now? I had missed the first several seasons of House mm -hmm. because I was in high school or something. I don't know. I binged them during the tail end of the pandemic, and they're so good. Uh, the first several seasons of House are great. I didn't realize how many people are walking around in New Jersey every day, and then they fall over, scream, and start bleeding out the ass or something. But it's amazing, <laughs> and so many different diseases have that exact constellation of symptoms. It's a great show. Uh, do they build on each other? House, to me, always felt like such a law and order show where you could just kind of like come in, and it would be like yeah. familiar, and like you would mm -hmm. just get the thing, and it was really great, and it felt like, okay, That's it. this is what it yeah. is. Yeah. You've got your like three characters who are stable season to season, like Benson and Stabler on SVU, and you just mm -hmm. don't have to worry about anything else. And it's totally procedural from there. So it's like the perfect folding laundry show. Yeah, yeah. Well, my thing also could be a folding laundry thing, although you would have to have a lot of laundry. So I would like to recommend right now watching the Tour de France. This was also a thing that I started watching mm -hmm. obsessively last year during the pandemic. It was delayed and it happened in September. And it happened like right at the time where I was feeling like, oh my gosh, I haven't been on a trip in so long. And just watching it just made me feel like, 
oh, I am in France and this is amazing. And my number one favorite thing about the Tour de France is that there's so little action over like the course of the four hour or five hour bike ride that it is that like <laughs> they're going through the French countryside. And it's so clear that like one of the announcers has just like a packet of the historical sites that they're going by. And so they're just <laughs> describing to you like, this is this castle and this is this town. And the bike racing is also exciting and this this year the tour started on saturday it was like a breakthrough news event when the spectator held up the sign in for the cameras and everybody crashed so everybody is maybe like more aware of the tour de france this year than they normally are but i would recommend you still have a couple weeks to keep watching it and i strongly recommend it uh it takes a lot of time if you're watching the whole thing but you can also just watch highlights and it's a blast that sounds great you sold me That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. I serve as editorial director with June Thomas, providing oversight and moral support. And we have additional production help from Rosemary Belson. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for your first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at the waves at slate.com. The waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Mm-hmm.